You are listening to audio from Victory Church. To check out more resources or to support the work of the ministry, visit victoryballotin.org. Well, I got a question this morning. Have you ever had expectations that were unrealistically high? Anyone ever had that? I was thinking back to, um, and I got to be careful to say this the right way. I was thinking back to when Olivia and I were uh, dating and then engaged. Man, your expectations before you get married are just way up here. And I'm not speaking in any specific way. I just mean in everything. In everything, you are expecting this incredible a peak experience of life that is going to go for the next 60 years. And people tell you, hey, get ready. Marriage is really hard. It's really good. It's really hard. And that's true. And you hear that. And most of us don't say, no, it's not going to be hard. Honestly, maybe some of you have said that before. But I, I didn't say that. But still, the over the overwhelming sentiment I had is, this is going to be good. And it has been good. However, um, Olivia and I, we talked a lot before we got engaged and married. We talked a whole lot on the phone, over text, FaceTime. We were long distance. So a lot of talking. We had very little conflict. And I was like, you know, this is good. I'm going to get to marry someone. And we're going to have like this level of conflict for the rest of our lives. For some reason, I knew better. But for some reason, deep down inside, something in me believed that. Has anyone ever been that naive? Before you get married? Okay, just me. Oh, there's a few hands. Mostly young guys' hands who are like, can I raise my hand here? I don't know. <laughs> um, it's true. It's true. Sometimes we have really high expectations, and uh, marriage is good. Marriage really is good. Marriage for Olivia and I is really good. But there are some things that I was like, man, we're just not going to have problems with that. This is amazing. But then you you get going, and, and uh, there are challenges, and, and God is good through it. But sometimes our, our expectations are unrealistically high. Some of us have had other people put unrealistically high expectations on us. Um, I remember I had an experience right out of school. Um, I, did a, I, I have an accounting degree. And so you, the door to accounting is still, in my experience, internships. You've got to do internships to really get a real full-time job in accounting. So I did my... Uh, tax internship. It was all great. Really easygoing, small office. After that, I was looking for a job, and I got a job with a medium-sized regional firm. And I remember the first week I was going, um, I got hired. I was really excited. And I got sent out on an audit, an on-site audit for the city that I grew up in. And I remember I got there, and, and it's me and, and another um, uh, middle-level accountant and sitting in this office at the city. And this, this middle-level accountant, bless their, bless their heart, they were really trying to help me and give me good opportunity to learn hands-on. They just gave me these worksheets and said, all right, you do these, I will do these. And off we went. And they expected that somehow I would know how to do all these worksheets with lots of different codes, lots of finances. And it was just a week of sweating all day every day. Of course, accounting, I was in a tie. I had a suit jacket on. I was, you know, I was trying to impress, so I didn't take my suit jacket on. Every day I came home and I was just drenched in sweat. And I got like one worksheet done a day 
because this middle-level accountant, bless their heart, they wanted to give me opportunity, but I just, I couldn't meet the expectations they had uh, that I would just be able to pick stuff up and do it. Has anyone experienced anything like that before? All right, some heads nodding. Well, sometimes expectations are high, and, and Jesus has high expectations for you and I. And that's so true in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is what we've been looking at. Um, today, we're going to look at Jesus on high standards. But first, let's do a quick review. So, so we've been going through for a few weeks now about this sermon, Sermon on the Mount, and a reminder the Sermon on the Mount is really like the manifesto of Jesus. It's an incredible teaching that spans Matthew 5 through most of chapter 7. And it's just incredible if you want to live in the kingdom of God. Um, he was brilliant in his teaching. Uh, and, and it really was probably, many have said, and I quoted this in the first week of the series, probably the greatest talk ever given by a human. The most brilliant talk. And so we've been taking pieces of it. So we started with Jesus on blessed and talked about what did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are you in the Beatitudes. It's an invitation to all of us. Uh, next, we looked at Jesus on salt and light. You may remember that week. And last week, we talked about Jesus on anger. Did anyone else besides me, I hope I'm not alone, have some really good opportunities after last week uh, to, to feel that anger rise up and realize, okay, I've got a test here. Anyone else have some anger arise this week? All right. Wow, you guys are good. Holy smokes. Can we raise our hands high? Who who's wrestled with some anger this week? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Good, good opportunities to grow, and, and I'm grateful to, to the Lord for that. Today, we're going to look at a big chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I would say that I am going to do no justice to everything that is in this chunk, we're going to look, we're going to just fly through about 20 verses. And I'm not going to stop and talk on each verse. We're going to talk about Jesus's overall sentiment in this set of 20 or 21 verses that we're, or 22 verses that we're going to read. All right. So we're going to start by reading this. Again, I'm not going to stop it. This really doesn't do justice to this text, but we're going to go through this large set of verses and talk about the general idea of what Jesus is saying in this section. So this is going to be Matthew 5, 27 through 48. And, the, uh, and I encourage you to read along on the screen, pull out your Bible if you've got it. Um, try not to lose track as we, as we read this long text here. So starting in verse 27, Jesus said this, you've heard it, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of, your part, one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body then your whole body to go into hell. It, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said that the ancient, ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, 
Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That's for you this morning, Brian. Um, All right. I got distracted. Where am I? But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Then verse 40, are you guys doing okay? If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, listen to this, what Jesus lands on. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of you feel like that is a high standard Jesus is calling you to, to be perfect? Now, again, throughout that text, man, there are 10 sermons in those verses. A few of them we are going to come back to in later weeks and touch on some of the points and really the narrow in on them. But today I want to talk about the general sentiment of what this 22 verses is saying about Jesus' incredibly high standard. So a few highlights in there that Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, tear out your eye. Or if your hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Uh, He equates divorce and adultery. Uh, He talks about making promises as evil or an oath. If someone attacks you, turn the cheek and let him attack you again. God. If someone takes you to court and sues you, think about this, what Jesus is saying. If someone takes you to court and sues you for what you have, give them more than what they won in the lawsuit. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, when someone sues you for your coat, give them your shirt too. Love your enemies. Think about that. Love your enemies. And then finally, he said, you're supposed to be as perfect as God. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Those are high, high standards when we read them that way. And the challenge is, if you and I apply, and many have, a 21st century understanding and assumption to the language of this text, we're going to go woefully off track and really miss Jesus' point. Now, I want to say this from the get-go. We're going to kind of break down some of this different stuff. And I want to say, I am not going to preach this this morning anything that is going to let you off the hook from what anything Jesus said, all right? So I just want to Put that out there uh, and just say this should not be interpreted as such. However, in the whole of all of this, I want to talk about the spirit of the teaching and what Jesus was really expressing here. 
that helps us understand why Jesus would say, if your eye causes you to sin, blot it out. Actually, in, in some of the early centuries, the church really wrestled some of this practi- practically. Uh, there were people who did some pretty horrendous things to themselves, and the church had to come together. Uh, I believe it was the Council of Nicaea that said, hey, no more cutting off hands or body parts or tearing out eyeballs. There was some of this that actually happened that people took really literally. That is not what Jesus is calling us to. Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus is not calling us to tear off parts of our bodies here, all right? As it may appear. So that's the first thing. However, I'm not letting us off the hook from Jesus' message this morning, and it is important. And when I have eyes as red as this, I may just preach some hellfire and brimstone this morning. Maybe not. We'll see. A really helpful figure and teacher that has helped me understand Jesus' intent and heart behind this text is a man named Dallas Willard. And I've quoted him a number of times here. Uh, He's a man who you're not going to find him in flashy videos on YouTube. He was very mild-mannered in his teaching but wrote some incredible books uh, that I would highly recommend. I'm learning to study him. He's quite intellectual. Um, but I've really been enjoying some of the practicality of his teaching. And this man's name is Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard, as I was studying this week, I heard him say this quote that I felt like so wrapped up the heart of Jesus in this text and, and solved some misperceptions for us. This is what Dallas said. I think it's up on the screen. Um, when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he is not giving laws. He's not saying, this is what you must always do. He's talking to you about the person who is at home in the kingdom of God and what they'll characteristically do when the occasion is right. So Jesus, this is what he's exposing here. Jesus is not saying, here's a new law to follow. Now, what do I mean when I say law? As you look and read through your Bible, many of you are familiar with this, some not so much. When you read some of those early books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we see some different variations of the law. Uh, Glenn and I had a a podcast discussion about this on the Abundant Life podcast that would be really helpful to you if you don't have a grip on what the law is and really about the Ten Commandments and the heart behind it. But many have read this text from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and said, oh, Jesus is referring to the law. So he is giving us a new set of laws. Now, many brilliant theologians have said that's what's happening here. So I want to be careful. I am not a brilliant theologian. But in my understanding, I fall on the other side to say, no, this isn't, this isn't new law that Jesus is giving. He's pointing to an issue in our approach of the law. That's what's going on here. That's what, that's what Dallas is saying when he says he's talking to you about what the person who is at home in the kingdom of God will characteristically do when the situation is right. Jesus is talking about what the law does in us when we come to it with a correct posture. I believe that these are the principles of the kingdom of God, which we want to live in as followers of Jesus, that are given through culturally understandable demonstrations by Jesus. There's a lot in here, right? When we talk about some of the issues, and these are very... uh, very plentifully debated in the church, issues of 
uh, remarriage and divorce. Many have, many have written some incredible books around that topic, what Jesus is saying here, or love for enemies, or lust, just lust in our heart being equated to adultery before God. There's so much in here that we could study. But the general thing that Jesus is saying here is that these are principles in the kingdom of God that have a cultural context to who Jesus is speaking to and should be applied with the right intent in mind. Now, here's, here's a question I have for us this morning. A little pause here. What are some words that you would use to do? This is, this is interactive here. What are some words that you would use to describe Jesus? This is not a trick question. I actually want to hear. So if someone would holler some out to me. What are some words you would use to describe Jesus? Loving. Compassionate. Merciful. Holy. Humble. Yeah, great words. I, I was thinking about it this week, and, and I've said this some, um, and, and really Dallas reminded me in a teaching I was listening to about this. One word that I failed to, dis, to ascribe to Jesus, one characteristic, with all of those being equally so true to this, Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is a brilliant man and a brilliant teacher. There is a reason that he took some really bold statements here and shared them with many following him. He is brilliant. And I, and I think that's an opportunity for us to trust the brilliance of Jesus here. And when we properly understand this, this, this text, it's not going to be something that's going to be challenging to us. I, I understand I've been on the other side of a teaching like this, and I've been, man, someone's going to talk about the lust and adultery and loving enemies and anger and all these things. And man, you can just kind of quake in your seat of what's he going to say? Where's he going to land on this? Let me just tell you, Jesus is brilliant. And if we open our heart to his teaching and understand the big picture principle of what he's saying, it will revolutionize our walk with him, our walk with others, and our relationship to him. That's kind of a bonus. That's not in my notes. But Jesus, man, he is brilliant in this. And, and what Jesus is talking about, as Dallas said, in these verses, these are some things that, that followers of Jesus, people who are in the kingdom of God, which he's inviting us to in the Sermon on the Mount, will characteristically do when the right opportunity arises, guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, he's speaking to a very specific problem in all of these different verses that is very real in this day when, when the listeners are there, when Jesus is teaching. And the problem is, is that the people listening to Jesus, they, they had one good picture, one good human picture of what right standing before God looked like, what applying the law to your life looked like, how following God was supposed to look. The picture people had of this is the paramount, the best, the most holy, it, it was the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were religious leaders. And, and the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus did not go easy on them. We're going to read some about that. But they had a righteousness that people observed. And if you and I were living in that day when Jesus arrived, and, and you wanted to know what a really holy, godly man looked like, you would look to the scribes and Pharisees. They, they were so righteous in so many ways. The problem was their righteousness was all on the outside. It was all external. Now, people didn't see this clearly, but Jesus, 
a brilliant man, knew their heart, and he exposed it. And it really ruffled some feathers. Matter of fact, some of the most uh, challenging words Jesus gave that are hard to understand in the nature of Jesus when we think of someone who's kind, compassionate, caring, loving, are some of the things that he said to Pharisees. At Matthew 23, Jesus took a whole section in your holy Bible that spoke right at the Pharisees and exposed them. And they are some strong words. Let me, let me read it to you. Matthew 23, verses 23 through 28. Very directly, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, cumin, sorry, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. You blind guides who strain out the gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean out the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, Whoa. which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So to you, so you too, sorry, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Strong words. Strong words. What was Jesus going after here? These were men who to others seemed wholly righteous. They had it all together before God. No issues. I mean, when it came time to do their 10% tithe, they would take their spices and separate out 10% and give them. I mean, by every measure, they were holy. They were great. They were great prayers. They were great readers, great public speakers. They had people following them. By every outside appearance, holy. Jesus, again and again, and this is true in Matthew 5, what we're looking at here, looks at that and say, that is not the measure of righteousness before God. Clean on the outside, but inside the cup, it's dirty. Now, I've had a few times I've done some dishes, and there have been occasions when I have made things nice and clean on the outside, but you know how there are some really sticky things that get on the inside of pans, especially if you're like me and you make a meal and you leave them sit for a while, and you scrub and scrub, and you're like, ah, that'll be fine. I'm going to leave that, because on the outside, it looks good. I've done that before, all right? That's what Jesus is speaking to. Clean on the outside. If you just looked at the outside, you say, man, that looks great. But on the inside, unclean, dirty, broken, selfish. Jesus had strong words for that. Here's the brilliance of Jesus. Don't miss this. The brilliance of Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, in, in 28 through, 27 through 48. For those who are obsessed with external appearance of righteousness, The section we read from Matthew 5 is devastating. It's devastating because it points us right to the ugliness of our hearts and tears down our self-righteousness. If you are are living like the scribes and Pharisees and you're so clean on the outside, but inside you've got issues, 
man, this, this section is devastating to say, to say that lust, just the lust in your heart is like adultery. You've already committed adultery just by it being in your heart and on and on through, through those verses. See, here's the truth about God, that as we walk in his kingdom, as his followers, we must understand, man will always look at the outside. Always. God always looks at the heart. God always looks at the heart. A great demonstration of this um, is in 1 Samuel. You may know the story of, of David. Young David, when he was a boy, he was a shepherd. And uh, there was a king in that time, the first king of Israel. The people asked for a king. God didn't want them to have a king. He was going to be their king. But the people said, we need a king like the other nations. We want to look like them. We want to be led like them. So God said, fine, I'll give you a king. He gave him King Saul. The prophet Samuel anointed, who, who was the leader under God then at the time, anointed a king who would even be above him. And his name was Saul. Uh, there, there's much to be said about Saul. Saul started on the right track, but eventually, let's just say he got off track. We're going to leave it at that for this morning. Uh, finally, God went to Samuel and said, Samuel, it's time to anoint a new king that will come after Saul. And this is from 1 Samuel 16. This story happens. Uh, God was done with, with King Saul, and, and it was time to anoint a king. And he, and he told Samuel, go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. Now, when Samuel, when the, when the prophet showed up in town, people were shaking in their booths a little bit. Like, what is he here for in the little town of Bethlehem? There must be something about to go down here. So there was a great following around Samuel, but he went to the house and obeyed the Lord, the house of Jesse. Jesse had, I believe it was eight sons, and, and he was going to anoint a king, one of his sons. And he went to the first one. His name was Eliab. And, and Samuel said, surely... The Lord's anointed is before me. This guy had everything going on the outside. He was big. He was strong. He was tall, intelligent, just like me. He was looking good. And, and wow, boy, no laughter this morning. Come on, guys. Uh, he had everything on the outside. And, and Samuel said, surely this has got to be the guy. God's looking at this guy. Oldest son, knew how to lead. He was a warrior. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The story there goes on. He, Samuel goes down through each son. He learned a lesson there with the first one, and God said, no, not him. No, not him. Got through seven of the sons, and those were all the sons standing there. And Samuel said, is this it? Because God said no to all of these. But he told me, go to the house of Jesse and anoint a king. And Jesse, the father, said, well, there is one more, one more son. He's out in the field. He watches sheep. That's what he does. And I imagine I'm adding commentary. You know, he's a little weird. He likes music. He plays music to sheep. Uh, he's, a little, he's a little strange. And Samuel said, well, I want to see him. So Jesse called him in. Come on in, David. He was out in the field watching sheep. And Samuel knew this is the Lord's anointed one, because he saw the heart. We're going to get that back to David a little bit, but more, more on the concept of God looking at the heart. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. 
James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, the Father, is this. Visit orphan and widows in distress and keep oneself, or many translations say, keep one's heart unstained by the world. God is looking at your heart, not your appearance. He's not even looking for perfection, but he's looking at your heart and saying, is there a pure heart there? Scribes and Pharisees, he spoke to it clearly. Dirty on, dirty on the inside, clean on the outside, but dirty. Their heart was dirty, full with sinful desires that they had fed and fed and fed. They did a great job of covering it up. But God's not looking for perfection from you. Not what he's looking for. Even David, this man that he went and anointed, Samuel went and anointed his king, came up as a great king, followed the Lord, but he had a couple of devastating moments of disobedience where his heart was led astray in some incredible ways. There are, there are a few accounts of it, but one in particular that was just hard to reconcile was David one day was uh, on his rooftop. He was supposed to be out to war. That was his first step of disobedience. He had gotten a little lax and a little lazy, I'd say. And he saw a woman bathing. And David had that intrusive thought of lust. And let's just say, man, he acted on it. He followed it all the way through. The king of Israel, of God's people, committed a great sin. And, and when it was done, he didn't, he didn't all of a sudden say, no, I've sinned before God. Lord, make me clean again. No, he, he doubled down. He covered it up. The, the husband of this woman, he had murdered on the front, bat- he sent him out to the front of the battlefield, had, had his army send him out to the front so that he would be killed. He murdered this man to cover up his sin. A child came from his sin, on and on and on. Um, some horrible things happened as a result, really. And, and one day the prophet Nathan came. And there were a couple of prophets in, in David's life at this time. Nathan was the one that when Nathan showed up, there was some correction about to happen. And Nathan told, just in short, Nathan told David a story about a man who was wealthy and had many sheep and a neighbor that only had one. And the wealthy man essentially took the guy who only had one sheep and and killed it and ate it, took it from him, so unjust. David heard that story and said, who is this man? He must be killed. We must bring justice. And Nathan turned and said, you are the man. He was caught, caught in his sin. This was the king that, that has been, it's been written around, the man after God's own heart, caught in great sin. Clearly, clearly a blemished heart. But how do you respond? Did he go on with saying, let me clean the outside of this cup? No, even in the word of correction, David realized, my heart is broken before God. I am unclean. He said some incredible words uh, in Psalm, I believe it was Psalm 51 after this. He prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence, O Lord. Cried out to the Lord in humility. Still paid the price for his sin. Many, many, many consequences he paid for. It was never the same. But you know what? The Lord, I believe, really restored a clean heart to David from that day. Because when... 
when he got exposed that the inside of the cup had gotten dirty, even though it was still clean on the outside, he turned and said, Lord, give me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. God's not looking at the outside. When you read Matthew 5, and you read all these things, oh my goodness, the lust in my heart is like adultery. That will terrify you if you are obsessed with what other people think of your righteousness. We think sometimes, man, the Pharisees, the scribes, those guys were horrible. But then we will walk out a life that looks just like it, ignoring the state of our own heart and just living outward appearance. What does it all look like? And worship team, uh, feel free to start making your way up. What does it look like? A couple of questions to help us test our hearts here. A couple of questions. And I've been asking myself these questions as I've been preparing here. Number one, whose eyes of approval are you living for? Really? Whose approval are you looking for? The scribes and Pharisees were obsessed with what other people thought of them and what they saw and the righteousness they saw in their appearance. My question is not about the scribes and Pharisees. It's to you. It's to me. Whose approval are we looking for? Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God, what's primary is the heart. A pure heart before God. A clean heart before God. As he invites us to follow him, that's what he's after. He, he said it to the Pharisees, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup. Clean the inside. Once you do that, the outside will be clean also. Start with the heart. That's what Jesus' ask is. But if we are living to, to meet the approval of others and, and for, they, for them to see us and say, wow, that is one holy, righteous guy, your heart will continually be dirty because you've got to protect that outside uh, appearance so that others see you. And when we protect what the outside appearance is, we block off the Lord from searching our heart and finding us with a clean, pure heart. My encouragement to you, live for the audience of one. My, my personal plea to the Lord has been Lord, may I have a clean heart before you. I, I lay down what others think of me. It's a daily battle. Lord, would you help me to lay it down? That I would be clean before you. You know, there are times when a clean heart that you have will be misjudged by others. It's true. But when we, when we have a heart that's clean before the Lord, we've got the thing that really matters. That's the first question. Whose eyes of approval are you living for? Really? Psalm 19, 14, David wrote another time in his life, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock. The second thing, second question. Are you trying to walk as close to sin without crossing the line? 
I'm stepping on toes this morning. I'm sorry. I, I hear this question. Um, I heard this a lot doing working with the, the youth here for a couple of years. And nothing gets used. I ask these questions myself at their age. I remember some of them having girlfriends and boyfriends would say, can I do this and it not be sin? Can, can, I, can I go this far? Like, where's the line of sin here? And my response has always been, you're asking the wrong question. Before God, you're asking the wrong question. It's not just youth, though. We all do it sometimes. We all do it sometimes. We try to walk as close as we can to sin and just say, we'll stop right before it. I I want a taste of the worldly desires, but I'll stop right before sin happens. But what are some ways that we do it? This is not an all-encompassing list, but I thought last night of a few ways that we try to justify walking close to the line. Um, these are some things you may have said at some point in your life, and man, I'm not trying to put shame on I'm just trying to show a reality here. Maybe you said, I'll lay in bed with my boyfriend or girlfriend. We won't cross any lines. Uh, we both love Jesus, and, and when temptation comes, we'll have self-control. Walking up, Let me just walk right up to the line walk right to the line of sin. We'll stop. I know we will. And some people have really paid the price. Or maybe I'll, maybe you said, I'll just go down to the bar just to talk with friends. I know last week I got drunk, but this week I'll know when to stop. Maybe you say to yourself, man, I can handle watching this TV show again uh, late at night by myself. I know there's some explicit scenes in it, but I know sitting there by myself, I'll have the strength to pick up the remote and skip through it and not expose my mind to that. Maybe you said, I can tell this little lie. It's just a white lie. It's not going to hurt anyone. Or maybe you, maybe it's as simple as, Man, I, can, I know I can sit and go have lunch with this friend again. Every time we talk, I know it ends in gossip. But this time I'll be bold and say, hey, we're not going to gossip. Uh, boy, I'm really going to step on this tax season. Uh, maybe you said, I can fudge the numbers just a little bit on the taxes. The government's going to get close to their share anyways. No one's going to be able to see this. This isn't in my W-2 or, or in my 1099 or uh, anything like that. Like, I, I, I'm fine to walk up to the line. And let me tell you, when we let our heart go to a place like that, be it whatever it is, when we say, I can walk up to the line and have my own worldly benefit, I'll know when to stop. Let me tell you, no one has ever walked into a trap on purpose. No one has ever put their foot in a trap of sin and said, oh, I knew there was a trap there. No one's ever done that. That's the point of a trap. Temptation leads us. The enemy would love to lead your heart right up to the edge. And sometimes right on that line of sin, there's just a trap, a snare there. Sin is a trap that no one walks into on purpose. So the right question is not, how close can I get? The right question is, Lord, how can I have a clean heart before you? How can I rid myself of this world's sin and be clean before you? That was Jesus' invitation to us. Jesus made some radical statements. Gouge out your eye. What is he saying? He's saying, keep your heart unstained by the world whatever it takes. He's not saying gouge out your eye, but he's, he's showing us 
that it's going to take some serious measures to keep the world off of us and have a clean heart. It's time to wage war on our sin that we may have a clean, pure heart. Jesus' high standard was this, not an elevation of the law or a new law. It's an invitation. Clean hands, pure heart. Jesus is first uh, message repent for the kingdom of God is at hand let's stand together if you'd like to a couple of invitations I know this is a heavy message but my eyes are red so I can get away with that today I hope my, my first invitation to you and we're going to spend a minute worshiping and just have an opportunity for response and quiet before the Lord before we leave um, if if when I talk about walking close to the line of sin and, and you've got something in your heart, a conviction that says, man, I've, I've been there. Maybe the Holy Spirit's revealing some things to you. Like, I've been trying to walk close to the line. And if you want to say, I'm done with that, I'm done walking close to the line. If you've got some things you need to lay down and repent of, the altar is going to be open for you this morning. Today, I think that we can ask the Lord for a grace to flee. Paul said, flee sexual immorality. All through scripture, we don't, we don't see Jesus or, or God in any inspired word saying, walk up close. See how close you can get without sinning. The instruction has always been flee, run. So that's number one, man. If you just know you've been walking close to the line, even if you know you haven't crossed it yet, what you've seen in your heart, man, I like to walk close to the line. You want to ask the Lord for a grace to flee. The, the altar will be open for you. And number two, if you've got a moment in life that you know you walked to the line and you, you've stepped in a snare, maybe it's a form of sin that you've never confessed before, but you want to come and confess that to the Lord, the altar is open to you as we sing and worship. Finally, uh, if, if neither of those are you, but just this morning, you, you feel the Lord drawing you to just uh, pray the prayer of, Lord, would you give me clean hands and a pure heart? There's no must in coming to the altar. Certainly not. You, the Lord will do that in your seat. But if you just feel like, hey, I need a, I, I've been here, okay? I need to take a step and say, Lord, give me clean hands, a pure heart. That is my greatest desire. If you just want to renew that. I believe that we can pray. And the Lord will just pour out fresh grace. He gives new measures of grace. And for some of us, we really need the Holy Spirit to walk this out. Where, wherever you are, the altar is going to be open. Um, elders, if you would, once we start singing, and if anyone comes forward, no one has to. But if anyone comes forward, elders, if you want to come and lay hands on and pray for them, that'd be awesome. Here's, here's the invitation. Wherever you're at, to pray to pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 19, 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. That's our prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you pour out mercy and your mercy is new every morning. Some of us have encountered great sin. Lord, I thank you that your mercy is more than enough wash the blood on the cross 
has given us the opportunity to be liberated from the bondage of sin and set free to serve you with a clean heart. Lord, would we be a people that wouldn't say, how close can I get without sinning? But Lord, we would say, how far can I get from sin that that my heart may be pure and clean before God? Lord, would that be the greatest desire of our heart? Clean hand and a pure heart. sing and pray together.
Lord, we don't want anything. You are our one thing. You are the only one that matters. Wash over us, Lord, by the blood that you spilled on the cross. Would you wash us clean again and again? I'm amazed at every new opportunity I give the Lord to look at my heart and say, Lord, search me. Something comes, something arises that I didn't even consider. The Lord says, well, you could, you could surrender this to me. You could give me a little more of this part of your life. Give me this room of your heart. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we bless you. We love you. Thank you for your mercy that you pour out on us so generously. Even as we were far off, Lord, you died for us that we could be brought near. Thank you that none of us have ever been too distant for you to restore us to your heart, to have clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, we just thank you for that. Father, as we go, would we walk out of here with a clean heart? Would Would our focus not be on what others see? Would we not walk like those Pharisees and scribes? have a dirty cup on the inside, clean on the outside. No, Lord, we say we want to be clean and pure before you. That's our desire as disciples following you. Jesus, would you give us grace for that? Father, as we go, would you surround us with your kindness? This week, could we be a demonstration of your light? When people see us, would they see something different in us that draws them to you? Lord, in each endeavor, would you cover us, give us your safety? Give us opportunities to see you day by day. And Lord, would your joy and your blessing overshadow us, go before us, behind us, and all around us, and all God's people say, amen, amen. Well, bless you guys. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.